the other thing that resistance will do, it'll say, who do you think you are trying to materialize this dream in your head? A million other people have had this idea and they all did it much better than you. You know, you're just the latest Johnny come lately. You're a bum. You had no training. You didn't go to Harvard. You're too old. You're too young. You're too fat. You're too thin. You're too ugly. Anything to stop us from enacting the dream that we feel inside us. And that's why I call Force of Resistance with a capital R. If you're not trying, you're not on the hook. You're safe. You can't blame yourself and nobody else can blame you. But once you sort of commit to something, even internally, then there's a risk. All of a sudden, you're exposed. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they are created to be so that others may benefit and God may be glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. And I'm so excited because today we've got a Path for Growth conversation with the world-renowned author, Stephen Pressfield. Now, you may be familiar with some of Stephen's nonfiction works, The War of Art and Turning Pro. The War of Art really captures what it means to be called to do creative work, work that matters, work that is visionary in nature, and the war that inevitably occurs whenever you decide to wade into that type of work because he clarifies and kind of classifies the enemy that we all face as resistance. And if you've ever done work that demands something of yourself, where you're not just a cog in a machine, as Seth Godin would say, but you're saying, I'm going to give part of myself to this work. I'm going to play all out. I'm going to bring my humanity to this thing. Then we do face a resistance. And then he talked about really how to wage that war by becoming a professional in the book Turning Pro. But he's also incredibly well-known for the historical fiction books that he's written. Gates of Fire is a really renowned book that he's written. And then the most recent one that is a follow-up to Gates of Fire called A Man at Arms. Now, I really just think that this conversation with Stephen and his perspective is just so beyond valuable because one of the reasons why we do these conversations on the Path for Growth podcast is because I just believe at the core of my being that there is so much value when a leader decides to intentionally and deliberately learn from a person that's outside of their arena. Because here's the deal. I'm not a full-time writer. Many of you are not full-time writers. Some of us may not even think of our work as creative work, and therefore, we don't think of ourselves as incredibly creative people. But I guarantee you, creativity is a part of leadership. And I consider Stephen Pressfield one of the foremost creative thinkers and thought leaders today because he spends so much time not just thinking about doing creative work, but about documenting how creative work is done. And so that's why I think this is going to be so practical for you is because he's going to talk to you about, number one, what it looks like to create, the resistance that you face, how you face that resistance. And then we go incredibly deep into just the idea that there's a healthy way to be a professional and there's an unhealthy way to do it. And we even get into some of the spirituality behind that. And he and I have different beliefs and different viewpoints in that, but it was just an incredibly enlightening conversation. Here's the deal. I I think that this conversation may challenge you a little bit. We go in a bunch of different directions and that was honestly on purpose because sometimes leadership doesn't always have to be hyper-efficient. 
Sometimes the greatest growth occurs whenever we choose to slow down a bit and just learn from perspectives that we haven't considered before. So I'm going to challenge you, hang in there with it, think about it, really try to absorb it and think about how these principles apply to the practicality of your life, your business, your leadership, and I'll catch you on the other end. But here is my conversation with Stephen Pressfield. I want you to tell the story that you discovered about Roseanne Cash and the infamous dream that she had and how it applies to everything that you write about in the war of art and really has come to define your practice. Roseanne, as everybody knows, is Johnny Cash's daughter, and she's had a long success as a singer. And in this book, she tells this wonderful story. It's kind of a long story. So you guys were listening, you know, hang in. It's like about a three minute story. But this is kind of on the subject of going from an amateur mindset to a professional mindset, kind of a life-changing moment for her, for Roseanne. And what's really interesting was, to me, was it came in a dream. It wasn't like something that happened in the real world. And I'm a big believer in dreams, and I'm a big believer that the unconscious is communicating to us and guiding us. Anyway, when Roseanne was starting out, one of her first albums was called King's Record Shop. I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh album. And it was a big success, and she had four number one hits off this record. But she was unsatisfied. Something was wrong. And she had always sort of wanted to be a songwriter and not just interpret other people's material. And one of her idols was Linda Ronstadt. And at the time, Linda Ronstadt was really hot with Heart Like a Wheel and Haitian Down the Wind and things like that. So one night, Roseanne had the following dream. She dreamt that she was at a party and she was sitting at a bench and there was a man, an old man in the middle named Art. She knew somehow from the dream that his name was Art. And on the other side was Linda Ronstadt. And then Roseanne was on the opposite side. And Art was engaged in this really intense conversation with Linda Ronstadt, really getting into it. And Roseanne wanted him to pay attention. And she tried to sort of break in. And Art kind of turned to her with this kind of withering glance of contempt and said, we don't talk to dilettantes. And Roseanne woke up from that dream. And in this book, in her book Compose, she says, I was shaken to the core by that dream. And I realized that I was a dilettante. I was an amateur. I had always wanted to write songs and I hadn't done it, you know, or only not to the extent that I wanted to. So she goes on to say in this book that from that moment on, she changed her life. She, she completely, re- she started studying, she started studying voice very seriously with really good teachers. She started painting. She started writing. She took care of her health. She started getting into fitness and stuff like that. She worked on changing certain habits that she had. Like she says she had a habit of kind of daydreaming and kind of going off into these kind of, you know, blissful states where nothing would happen. And she could taught herself to kind of snap out of that. And she started doing therapy and all kinds of other stuff and just completely switch from being an amateur to being a pro. She said, I am not doing what I want to do, what my dream is, which is to be a songwriter and to really, you know, express myself. And she, so she changed her life thereby. And again, to me, it's great that insight came from a dream that came from herself, from her own deepest core, her own self kind of guiding her and, you know, giving her a slap across the face and telling her (laughs) to wake up. So 
Great question to start with, Alex. It's a, it's a one I'm inspired by that all the time because I think, you know, that's the kind of moment that we all need. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and I, I love that you hit your. I love that you hit the <laughs> with the fist because that's what it feels like whenever you hear that story. You, you know, we don't mess with dilettantes or we don't talk with dilettantes. But what's crazy to me about that story and the reason why I wanted to start there, Stephen, is because I feel like that story adds so much validity to what you talk about in the war of art between the amateur and the professional. It's like, I want to go ask Roseanne, like, have you read the war? Like, like, did you read the war of art? Like, is that what happened? Is that what causes it? Cause it just, it, it almost says like, that was her experience of making that transition. And it just seems like that's what you did in the war of art is you didn't make up this just random concept. It seems like you took words and put them to what is apparently something that a lot of people have experienced or do experience. Is that fair to say, Stephen? I think that's true. I mean, a, a lot of people have said, expressed that, you know, but it's, again, it's sort of, it's similar. It's a real come to Jesus moment. You know, it's like yeah. a moment when somebody who has a drinking problem wakes up, you know, in a gutter, you know, with a bottle of Jack Daniels next to them. And they have that moment where they say to themselves, oh my God, I have been in denial of this problem that I have. And now I can't, I'm not in denial of it anymore. I, I have to face it. And at that point, a person says to himself, I got to change my life. You know, I can't keep going the way I'm going. And then they sort of make various resolutions. And in, the same thing in business when, you know, like I'm sure when you've just gone into business for yourself, you know, you stepped out and started your own company. And I'm sure you were well prepared for this, but also you must have had moments when you said, you know, certain areas where I was a little slack. I've got to really tighten the ship here, you know, because, you know, this is, it's no longer, this is professional. This is for real. And in fact, let me ask you, Alex, did you have (laughs) a moment or moments like that where you sort of said, uh, I got to take my game to another level? Oh, I think that there's a degree of responsibility that just gets raised whenever you realize the consequences and the benefits are now on your shoulders. And we're in the process of hiring now. And that even raises the stakes even more is what it feels like. And so it's like suddenly we say that our direct audience and the people that we talk to, Stephen, are impact driven leaders. And it's like when you when you feel accountable both to other people, but also for an impact that you feel called to make in the world, man, it feels like it demands a higher degree of commitment from you as an individual. Yeah. Uh. Very interesting. Okay. I love that question, Stephen. I don't know how you turned the table and got to asking me questions, but I love it. But I mean, I love that you framed too at the beginning how that story really characterizes kind of that dichotomy and and the transition from amateur to professional. And I think that was really birthed out of your experience. Is that fair to say of, of you were doing writing essentially as an amateur and then you had that come to Jesus moment as a professional? Yeah, I've had many of them. I mean, it, that's the thing. It doesn't, it, in my experience, it's not just one. It's like you think you've turned a corner and then you realize, well, maybe I haven't completely turned it, you know? Okay, so to, I want to dive into that because I, I I haven't heard you talk much about the fact that there's multiple. So let's start with the first one, that like the first moment where you almost gained awareness about the fact that it's like it's kind of like that come to Jesus moment. When was that, and what were the circumstances surrounding that, Stephen? Well, I I write about this in in the War of Art, and it was a moment when I had been 
working a thousand jobs and basically running away from writing for, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years, driving trucks, working in the oil fields, doing stuff like that. And I had sort of completely, I kind of came to the end of that, went back home to New York City, was living in this $150 a month sublet. And there was a night when, and I had not taken out my typewriter for a long time and for years. And there was this night when I finally said, I, th- I thought, should I go out? Should I go out chasing women? Should I go out and get drunk? Should I call up various friends and, and just be a bum hanging out with them? And I had just done it so many times that I said, I just can't do it another night. And I dragged out this old typewriter of mine and just sat down for two hours writing just a bunch of garbage that I immediately threw away, you know, in the in the trash. And then, and this is a story in the War of Art. And I went I went out to the kitchen. And there was a big pile of dishes in the sink. And I started to wash them. And I realized that I was whistling. And that moment to me sort of told me that just the two hours of sitting down writing had had given me some sort of sustenance. You know, instead of it freaking me out, it gave me something positive. So I, at that moment, without really, I never called a turning pro. I didn't think of it in that sense. But I really knew that I kind of turned a corner and that from then on, I was going to I was going to work at this. You know, I might have to do a million other jobs to support that. But then sort of the long version of the story, like what you were saying, Alex, about the many times was it was probably another 15 or 16 years before I actually sold anything or made the first dollar at that. So there were many other kind of changes that went along the way. But that was step one. That was the first moment for me when I said, I've got to start thinking of myself as a professional, not as an amateur, even though I didn't use those words or didn't think of it in those terms at that time. But you look back at it, although you didn't use those words, you look back at it as a concrete mindset shift, like something changed inside. Absolutely. Something changed in my DNA at that moment. What so like how do you explain that? Like what occurred there that suddenly you were whistling? Like what do you look at and how do you explain that to someone? There's a concept that that the ancient Greeks had, mm. and, and the word is daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N. I just was reading a, an article in Medium about this yesterday. It was right on target, I thought. And the daemon, the Latin word for daemon was that the Romans used is genius. And what the Greeks and the, and the Romans believed was that we were born, every one of us, with kind of an inhering spirit that was our true identity. You know, our whatever it contained our calling, sort of like an acorn contains the, the whole pattern of the oak. And I think that what happened for me in that moment, and it happens for, with Roseanne, with the dream, I think was I finally sort of aligned myself with that spirit. Even though I had no clue that was what was going on, but I had just been running away from it and not sort of because that spirit requires something of you. It's, it requires that you embrace whatever this calling is, embrace the concept of finding out who you really are, what you were really put on this earth for. And another way of saying turning pro is that you kind of commit to that. You say, I'm not going to be scattered all over the place. I'm not going to go off on some weird tangent or another one. I'm going to really focus on what this is and stay with it. And I think in that moment, 
I sort of aligned with my daemon, whatever that was. And that's why I think there's a real shift that happens. Some sort of, on some chemical level, something changes, I think. Man, that's so good. I, so I'm I'm a Christian, and I think that there's parallels between the way you talk about daemons and, and the way Christ followers think of the Holy Spirit, and it being some sort of this in, internal divine connection to something that's way bigger than us, and it almost grabs you on a soul level. And the thing that I think about whenever you talk about that, Stephen, is the fact that you say for seven years you were running from the fact that you were a writer. And I would imagine that as a result of running from something that was going on at the soul level, it probably created a a great deal of internal dissonance for you. Yes, (laughs) to put it mildly, yeah. Which that's really a very Christian concept, isn't it? The idea of sort of running away from whatever it is, the spirit, you know, that uh, you can't run away, that's going to find you. You know, you can run, but you can't hide type of thing. Well, and it's kind of crazy because it's so often I think we try, and and this was my story in many ways, I found myself trying to live into other people's expectations of what I should be, and I would find myself saying, why can't I just want this? right? Why can't I just want this thing? Why can't I just want to do this thing? Why does it have to involve me going out and starting my own business? Like, why can't I just want that? And it, and, but it almost hints to the fact that it's like, this is not of the logical realm to a degree. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It sort of utterly defies logic, you know, and I think it's a story that every, so many, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people say where we're trying to live up to our parents' expectations or our church expectations or something we imbibe from advertising or marketing or whatever, TV, you know, and we're, it makes sense when you're young, you try to do that, you know, and you go down blind alleys and, and at some point you say, I'm, I got to stop living somebody else's life and, and really kind of figure out what's my life. And I think related to that too, like, I'm a runner as well. I am perfectly okay being an amateur as a runner, right? Uh, and and like, that's great. And like, I love being an amateur runner and I want to do well, but it's not the thing that I'm going to sell out for, right? But then building this business and the work that we're doing for impact-driven leaders and creating this podcast and providing exceptional content. And anytime I get on a stage to speak, like I have zero tolerance for amateurism there because I feel like I'm held to a higher standard. So is it fair to say, and have you witnessed this both in yourself and the people you've talked to that it's like, there's certain arenas where it's okay to be an amateur and it's probably even healthy to be an amateur but then like there's something that stands out where it says it kind of demands a level of professionalism for you that is higher than the other arenas. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And in fact, I think a lot of the areas where it's okay for us, we feel to be amateurs are, are sort of parallels to our real professional thing. Like I'm sure that with running for you, you know, it's a discipline. You can't just jump out there and flop along. You've got to be committed. You've got to be focused. You've got to come to some sort of state of mind where you can keep running. You've got to take care of yourself, your shoes, your feet, your ankles, your knees, you know? So, and a lot of times I think for me, I use certain other activities. Like for me, I'm more of a gym person rather than a runner. The metaphor of going to the gym first thing in the morning is an absolute parallel to sitting down in front of this thing and uh, trying to come up with something, you know, because it's something that I that resists me, 
You know, it's what resistance training is. It's something that hurts and it's something that I don't want to do. So, and also something that I feel great once I've done it. So that's, but I'm an amateur there. I'm a total amateur there. Although I try to do the best I can, but I can't compete with anybody else on any level in that, but it helps, you know, it's a parallel, it's a metaphor. It's another way to kind of reinforce yourself that you're doing the right thing. I love that you bring up that idea of resistance already, because the the more I read and listen to your work, Stephen, the more I realize how I have just accepted as normal and we culturally have just accepted as normal that it's really stinking difficult to do work that matters. But it's just crazy because I can decide to go to the grocery store right after this and I can hop in my car and go to the grocery store and have no issue, right? But the minute that I decide that I'm going to do something that actually means something in this world, suddenly there's all these other forces at play. And I know you describe those forces as the resistance. So I'd love for you to dive into what that is and how people experience that, Stephen. This this is also in The War of Art and in another book of mine, Turning Pro. Mm -hmm. And the way I experienced it as a writer is like, again, I'll put up this little keyboard here. When you sit down as a writer to a blank page or a blank computer screen, and you know you got to fill it, you can feel radiating off that screen a negative force that's trying to push you away, you know, trying to stop you from doing it. And it's coming up with every kind of excuse possible in the world, you know, or every kind of distraction, you know, let's go to the beach, let's go, they go hike, you know, let's do something else. Or the other thing that resistance will do as a voice in your head, it'll say, who do you think you are trying to do this, you know, trying to materialize this dream in your head? You know, a million other people have had this idea and they all did it much better than you. You know, you're just the latest Johnny come lately. You're a bum. You had no training. You didn't go to Harvard. You're too old. You're too young. You're too fat. You're too thin. You're too ugly. Whatever. You know, we that voice in our head to anything to stop us from doing doing the, you know, enacting the dream that we feel inside of us. And that's what I call force of resistance with a capital R. And one of the things that uh, I say in The War of Art is that as a writer, it's not the writing that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. Mm. And it's resistance, that force that stops us from doing it. And it's an absolute real life force, even though we can't see it or hear it and nobody talks about it. So I'd love to know what was the tone or the phrases that voice would use in the beginning for you whenever you really first started to name it. But then I'd also love to know, Stephen, what are the things that that voice will tell you now? Because every time I've heard you talk about this, you say that this is still something you get up to fight every single day. So what was it at the beginning and what is it now? In the beginning, it was sort of what I just said to you. It was like, you're not qualified who do you think you are? You're no, you know, you've got no training. You don't know what you're doing. You don't have any good ideas, all that sort of stuff. But actually right now I'm kind of starting a new book and I'm so I'm in the absolute throes of resistance now. It's great that you asked this question now. It's just, <laughs> it's sort of, it's interesting. One of the things that, it, that it's affected me is it made me really irritable with my girlfriend. And, you know, 
she's actually out at the dentist right now, but I would sort of start to blame her for stuff, you know, and be short with her. In general, I also just had a, a real feeling of just not exactly depression, but just kind of dissatisfaction with myself. I'm just not happy. I'm walking around. I don't know what's going on. And the other main point is, as I sit down and start to do this story that I'm working on, is I have tremendous doubts about it. I'm thinking, nobody's going to be interested in this. You know, you're going to expose yourself as the bum you always secretly knew you were, you know, that kind of thing. I'm an imposter, that that kind of thing. And all of those forces combine to kind of keep me from doing the work, you know? So I, fortunately, having done this for a million years, I know that's what it is. And I know that that I've got to do the work and that as soon as I do the work, I'll feel a million times better. And it's true, Gosh. but I've been really struggling with it. You got me right at a time. And resistance, in my experience, is very creative. It's intelligent. It's creative. It's it's a shapeshifter. It changes all the time. It'll try to outfox you in every kind of way. You may think you've got its number, but it's got some new trick up its sleeve all the time. Man, I was listening to a pastor literally yesterday. He was giving a sermon where he was talking about, you know, it can be so easy if we allow ourselves to believe in a spiritual world, it can be so easy to give a disproportionate belief to the higher and the better and the good and the right and the just and the true, but completely deny the fact that there are forces of darkness and evil and really demonic things going on. And his essential point was like the degree to which you deny those things exist is the degree to which those things own you. And so I agree. I mean, it seems like you have are operating from a position of greater power now just by the fact that you can name it and you can say, I, I see you, your resistance, and I'm calling you out. That's exactly right, Alex. It's like simply naming it is everything, you know, to put it in Jewish mysticism terms. Mm. There's uh, the concept that we exist here on the material plane and above us is the higher plane, the soul, the neshama, and that we're reaching up to the neshama in what you might call prayer or in also as a writer, I'm reaching up kind of saying, like, give me an idea, you know, what's the, tell me a story that I can use. And the thing in Jewish mysticism is that between these two levels is another thing, another force that's called the Yetzer Hara, and if that force's role is t- utterly negative. It's just trying to stop us, trying to stop the soul from communicating to us and trying to stop us from doing that. And as my rabbi, Mordecai Finley says, what you would call resistance, Steve, talking to me, is this other, this negative force, the Yetzer, is trying to stop us from getting to our higher selves. Wow. Are you Jewish, Stephen? I don't know yeah. if I knew uh-huh. that. I didn't realize that. So how do you, uh, like, are there other ways, because I'm just so fascinated by Jewish culture in general. We have members of the Path for Growth community are are part of a really tight-knit Orthodox Jewish community up in New York. And I'm just so fascinated by their culture and the way that they perceive life and and just the, I mean, the extreme level of discipline, to be quite honest with you, is just real. The work ethic is just insane. Are there parallels within the Jewish belief system that apply to what we're talking about? About here. You know, I wish I was more familiar with this. 
that's why Rabbi Finley has to instruct me and slap me. But one of the things actually that he said, and I only know a little bit about this, talking about the subject, is there's a a thing in Jewish mysticism called Musar. Have you ever heard of this? I I have not. M-U-S-A-R. And it's a discipline. And it's very much like AA in the sense like the like step one in Musar is identify the sin. And step two is stop doing it. In other words, it doesn't go into like, it's not like psychotherapy where you spend years trying to figure out, you know, where it all came from. It's, you know, it's like, if you're drinking, stop drinking, you know? And so from that, it's a very, apparently, I wish I knew more about it. It's like turning pro. It's a very down to earth discipline. That sort of says, you know what you need to do? Sit down and do it. You know, mm. work out a system and do it. And so that to me is kind of is turning pro. But it's also if you think about the two levels, you know, and you're trying to get through this negative thing, just keep trying. Sit down and do the work. You know, I'm sure that's what you do with your new business and what you did with Dave Ramsey. You know, you might not want to, but you know, you might not want to go to the gym. You might not want to run, but you got once once you do it, then things work. Well, it, it, it's amazing, and I love that you bring up Dave's company. One of the one of the best lessons that I learned there it was the power of two questions. Question number one is, what does winning look like in a given period of time? So, what does winning look like a week from now? What does winning look like a year from now? What does winning look like ten years from now? And then the second question is, what must be true to get there? Uh-huh. And it's exactly what you're talking about, though. Like, it takes a level of audacity and courage to envision a future that is not the present, right? Like, it takes a level of audacity and bravery to say, I'm an alcoholic today and I'm not going to be one starting next year, right? Like, that's a crazy. And, and so, I guess, I mean, it had to have been, I mean, you said it took seven years and you were running from it for seven years. There's something that there's something that is demanded from us whenever we start calling ourselves a writer, whenever we start calling ourselves an entrepreneur, whenever we start calling ourselves a leader, you know, or like whenever we put a name to the resistance, it takes away its power. But it's also at the same time, there's power to putting a name to the thing that we want to be. Yeah, that's great. And I never had heard that, you know, what would winning look like? That's great. You know, that's in a way as a writer, if you're, if you, that is the finished book, Mm -hmm. right? That's what it's going to look like. You know, it's going to look like this. And then the next question is, well, how do I get there? Which kind of goes back to Musar, what I was just talking, which is a real or turning pro, a very down to earth concept of, okay, that means I got to get up early in the morning, you know, or I have to, whatever. I have to spend four hours a day or whatever days, you know, and you can come up with a plan just like a business, right? I've got to assemble a team. I've got to get financing. I've got to have a product or a service or whatever it is that it is. I've got to get that together and we can break that down into steps too, right? That's right. Started, you know, with a concept, et cetera, et cetera. So have you by chance read Seth Godin's new book, The Practice? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's so much. There's so much in alignment with your work. And I know, uh, I mean, he even mentioned in the interview that we did with him how much he's been inspired by your work. But one of the phrases that is me for him. 
he that guy is just next level brilliant i'm not positive that he's from earth he might be an alien <laughs> but well honestly that brings up an interesting point it scares the living daylights out of me anytime i spend time with someone like seth godin because when i spend time with him i realize oh my gosh he's a human being and then I have to say, well, I'm a human being. And then, but it's like, and that connects to what he says in the practice where he says, the minute you allow yourself to believe that something is possible, the minute you allow yourself to believe I could be a writer or I could be a business owner or I could be a leader of a $10 million business or a $100 million business, the phrase that he uses is that then you're on the hook for it. And yeah. I just love that phrase of being on the hook for it. Yeah, it's true. And that's what, I mean, that's really fear of success which is a thing that has kind of haunted me my whole life. I've never really been able to quite define it or understand why it's so scary. But I think Seth's phrase of you're on the hook for it is, well, you're on the hook for it. You know, you, mm. if you're not trying, you're not on the hook. You're safe. You're okay. You're not going to, you can't blame yourself and nobody else can blame you. But once you sort of commit to something, even internally, then there's a risk. All of a sudden you're exposed, you know, like that word exposed in mountain climbing. Are you familiar with this at all, Alex? It's a really uh, interesting word. Talk to me about when it. When you're exposed, you could be at the top of Mount Everest, hanging on a side of some ice. But if there was a ledge like two feet below you, you're not exposed. But if you could be 10 feet off the ground, but if there's nothing underneath you, you know, and if you fall, you're going to go, then you're exposed. And they, you know, it's called exposure, right? You know, there's a certain, you know, a face of rock when it's just a total exposure the whole way. And that's sort of being on the hook, you know, because you can fall. And that's pretty scary. And that's why a lot of us don't want to get on the hook. But I know what you mean by <laughs> Seth. It's like when I'm with Seth, I think like, I know he's from a different planet. And I'm trying <laughs> to get to that planet. I can't, can never quite get to that planet. You know, yeah, he is absolutely. so smart. You know, it's like things that he says. I, I want to write them down, then I got to go home and like study them for two or three hours just to understand where he throws them off like that. Someone told me recently that they asked Seth like how far ahead he writes his blog in advance because I know he writes daily. And apparently, his answer to that individual was that he could die and people wouldn't know about it for another year and a half. <laughs> just unbelievable. But okay, so what you just talked about with that word exposed, I feel like you just recapped the conversation that I had with my therapist this morning. <laughs> so how do you, because you are someone that stands out to me as really, I, I admire you for this. The fact that you are still going after work that leaves you exposed because you are at the level now where you could continue to re release a book every two years that doesn't demand as much of you. And the publisher would probably still keep releasing it. And you would have a large portion of your base that would buy everything you put out. But you, I mean, you just told us today, you're stepping into territory that you haven't stepped into before. You're constantly stepping into new genres, new arenas, new types of writing. How do you deal with the pressure of being exposed, Stephen? First of all, I think if you stop doing that, you start to die. You start to get old, you know? If you stop trying to do something new, you know, or trying to explore other parts of your gift, whatever it is. So it, it's like 
for me, I feel like I don't have a choice. I don't want to go down that road where I'm just going to, you know, start to fizzle out, you know? So, and to me, the fear of it is just part of, part of the game. It's part of the game. You know, if you're going to play the game, you have to be willing to fail and to, you know, a lot of my books have gone out there and just died, you know, in, in ignominious death, like a dog in the street, you know? So it isn't like I've got any kind of, you know, momentum or anything like that. But also, I'm also a big believer. I, I have a recurring dream that I think a lot of people have in this dream. And in the dream, I'm in my house or what I sort of, I recognize as my house, even though it might not be like my actual house. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that I'm in a room that I never knew was there. Like I'm down in the basement and I don't even have a basement, you know, and there's pool tables and, you know, jukeboxes and all kind of stuff. And I say to myself in the dream, say, wow, what a cool room. I had no idea this was even here, you know. And what I interpret that to mean is that my house is myself, my psyche, and that there are parts of that that I don't even know exist. And in fact, I think if you want to get to a spiritual level, I think that, which I love to be on that level, Yeah, I think our houses have many mansions, you know, that mm. we're much, there are many parts that we weigh more than we think of. So I think trying something new is really sort of going into one of those rooms. I think, you know, an actor or actress, they always like to take a part that they've never done before, you know? If they've never been a really rotten villain, who will actually be a great villain, you know? Or, you know, if they've never been, you know, they'll play the opposite sex or, you know, whatever. And I'm sure that they're thinking is, this is a part of me that I don't know about. Let me explore it. What? Let me see what it feels like to be a really rotten person, you know, or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. What it must be like for an actor to play Jesus, to get cast. Imagine get, getting cast as Jesus. Where is that going to take you in terms of your own psyche, you know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I'm a huge Abraham Lincoln fan, just absolutely obsessed with Abraham Lincoln. I'm almost to the point now where I have a full shelf, entire wide shelf of Abraham Lincoln books. Just am obsessed with the guy. And when that movie, have you seen the film Lincoln that Daniel I Day-Lewis? I tried to, but I just couldn't get into it. Oh, no, Stephen, you're breaking my heart. Uh, Well, I mean, I think part of why I was so fascinated by that movie is because I got really into the relationship between Doris Kearns Goodwin, who wrote Team of Rivals. She's the historian that wrote Uh Team of Rivals, and Daniel Day-Lewis, who played Abraham Lincoln. And she said that he would literally, I mean— a year before the movie was even going to be shot, he had been cast for the movie and she would get calls at like 3 a.m. where he would ask her these random questions about how he would walk or how he would say a certain phrase. And she's, I mean, the world's leading historian on Abraham Lincoln. So she knew the answers. And by the time they got to the movie, she says like, it's literally everything I imagined that he would be. But uh-huh. it, it's exactly what you're talking about with regard to professionalism, though, that it's like we are not just going to play the part. We are going to immerse ourselves in what this person is or what this work demands and bring our – I mean, I think that's probably the analogy. We're going to bring our whole self to it. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And wouldn't Daniel Day-Lewis be a fascinating guy to interview? And ask him about his whole process of 
you know, how he does it and why he does it and what he goes through. You know, I remember, you remember he was in that movie, Last of the Mohicans. Did you ever yes. see that? I, I don't know that I've ever seen that movie. I know he was in it, but I don't think I've ever seen it. It's a pretty cool movie, but I remember reading about, you know, a big part of the thing. I guess he played Deerslayer or whatever, you know, I forgot that, that, but a big part was he had to learn to do a flint lock, you know, muzzle loading rifle, you know, which is pretty complicated thing to do to load it and all that sort of stuff. And that he like drilled himself over and over till he could just do it like that. And another, and throwing axes and tomahawks. And another big part of that movie was it was kind of set in the, like the Iroquois world, the Mohican world, you know, the Eastern Northeast woods, you know, and he set himself to like learn to run through these, through the trees, you know, cause apparently, and, you know, that was how they would go on these trails. And when you see him in the movie, it's completely convincing, just like Lincoln, even though I've only seen parts of it. So, yeah, it is, a, I guess, for an actor, it's total immersion. But for us, too, if we're going into a new venture, we're going into a new part of ourselves. And, you know, it's scary. It's exposure. But it's also opening up other, you know, it keeps you from dying. It keeps you growing. It keeps you evolving. I know you talk a lot about the value of rhythm and routine, but I feel a lot as though there can be properly motivated structure or improperly motivated structure. And I've seen a lot of people that, I mean, are just, and I've been in this place before, and I think that's why I can now recognize it. And I'm always at risk of going there again, if I'm not careful, that their schedule is just bonkers, but they're doing it out of a place of, they don't feel they're enough. And so it's almost like the resistance it's almost like the resistance is still winning to a degree because their driving motivation is their absolute complete fear of succumbing to it. Uh-huh. But then like I look at people like you that I mean, you just seem like you're having a ball right now, Stephen. And it seems Not like really like I say, I'm in the throes of resistance right now and it's tough, you know? Okay, but I mean you're sitting on here and you're smiling and we're having a great conversation and and we're laughing. I guess what I would like to know is what is your motivation for your structure in this season? Because you are facing the resistance right now, but there's no, it doesn't feel to me as though there's less life in you. There still feels like there's life in you. So what's the motive? I I go sort of from project to project, which is what a writer does, right? One book, you finish one book, you go to another book, right? A musician would go from one album to another album or an actor or director would go from one movie to another or one business to another if you're an entrepreneur. So my my motivation right now immediately is to try to I, I haven't gotten into this new project yet. I can't I haven't hit a rhythm yet. I haven't hit a stride yet. And once I do, then I can I'll be able to kind of settle down you know, like a draft horse that just kind of with an even strain, you know, you keep pulling that Budweiser, the wagon full of Budweiser. But so that's my motivation at the moment is to try to come to grips with this alligator that I'm wrestling and, you know, and see if I can get into a groove of doing it. You know, Seth's book, we were talking about his book, The Practice. And what he really talks about in that book is having a practice in the sense of, like you were just talking about somebody that's overscheduled or scheduled for some crazy reason. Once you sort of find what it is that you love and what it is that gives you sustenance, 
I think you, if you're smart, you settle down to a practice, kind of like a yoga practice or martial arts practice or something that is a ritual, is a kind of a, almost a religious thing. Like if we were in a monastery, you know, we would get up in the morning and whatever, you know, you pray, you go out in the garden, you have breakfast, then you have whatever monks do. You know, there's a regular, they're, they're living a practice, really, if it's imitation of Christ or whatever it is. It's a lifelong kind of thing that that you commit to every day without necessarily any goal in mind. You know, it isn't like, oh, I'm going to win an Oscar at the end of this year and my life's going to be wonderful. It's rather that you go into the dojo every morning, you know, you bow, you practice your martial arts or whatever it is, or you meditate and you do that the next day and the next day and the next day. Same thing with a painter or a, I'm sure Stevie Wonder sits down at the piano every day and Bob Dylan sits down at the piano every day and writers sit down at their keyboard and you sit down at whatever you do to help people's businesses without a real expectation of, oh, this is going to change my life. It's rather like this is my life. The process is my life. And that's being a professional too, I think. I think that's so spot on. I, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I admire Dave Ramsey so much is he's figure out how to tie his practice into his calling. And it's just created this virtuous cycle. But it's what's so cool is every day that guy gets behind the desk and takes phone calls from people that have personal finance questions for three hours every single day. Really? Wow. I, and I mean, that's the the radio show that now has 16 million listeners a week, right? But he was doing it whenever it had 10 listeners out just yeah. in, and broadcast on one station in Nashville. And And what's so cool is it's a great business model whenever you can define a practice that aligns with your passion and do it every single day. A lot of times the results come just from the consistency. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And of course, you evolve. You know, the, the practice evolves like, you know, we were just talking about writing something new, doing something new, going into another area. You know, I'm sure that's true for like Steve Jobs. You know, he I'm sure he, when he started out with whatever the first thing was, the Macintosh, and then it became, you know, I don't know what the next computer and then the iPhone and, and it, it evolved. But he was sort of living that same sort of creative life all the way through. You know, I heard a fascinating story about Steve Jobs. Tony Robbins told this story. He said that Steve Jobs, whenever he came, he was exiled, right? And then he came back to Apple. Yeah. He would walk around the building and ask two questions. What business are we in? And then what business are we really in? And at oh, the time, great. and at the time, it was still called Apple Computers, and and he kept asking that question and he wasn't satisfied with any of the answers and kept asking him. And apparently one day, one young guy at a meeting said, well, we connect people to their passion. And uh -huh. he said, I think that's right. And so partially as a result of that realization, they said, we're not Apple computers anymore. We're just Apple. And uh, now 75% of their revenue comes from a phone. Ah, and I never had just, heard that. That's really fascinating. But they allowed themselves to dream bigger. And that was my next question for you is when you think about the next project or when you think about what's coming next, because we see so often business owners, they identify themselves at 
okay, I'm at the end of this stage and I need to think about what's next. I have an intensive tomorrow out here in Pennsylvania with a business that they literally said, we're looking to step into new arenas and we're trying to figure out what's next. How do you go about identifying what's next, Stephen? Well, that's a really great and really hard question. But I'm, while we're always getting into deep stuff here, I'll keep going there. I'm a believer in, in the muse in the goddess that inspires artists, right? And if I define my, yes, what business am I in? I'm a servant of the muse. And so I sort of feel like on some higher level, some force, and I'll call it a divine force, knows, call it the daemon, if you will, too, knows what I should be doing next. And I'm just trying to tune into that cosmic radio station and get the answer. You know, now sometimes with a book, you'll be seized by an idea and you just don't have any choice. You know, I've just got to do this. Usually in my experience, that idea seems so crazy that you think nobody's ever going to be interested. Nobody's going to buy this. You know, this is totally stupid, but I just got to do it. I've got to do it. But a lot of times I also, it's not quite that clear. So it's, but it's, I'm trying to tune into that cosmic radio station and find out what the next assignment is for me. And a lot, it's usually a surprise. It's usually something I never would have thought that I, that I should be doing next. And sometimes it even is kind of is a, you feel like you're going back a little bit to an area that you may have explored before. And you think, well, I shouldn't really be going forward because I've already done that kind of thing. But sometimes that's the right thing to do. But it's really hard. It's so easy to be wrong. And that's like my resistance right now that I've been telling you about. I'm trying to ask myself this new thing. Is this really what the muse wants me to do? Or am I deluding myself? And that's a form of resistance too. second guessing yourself, not trusting your instincts. So it's tough. It's really tough. I don't have any pat answer for that. Well, how do you answer that question? Because you're in the middle of it right now and you sit there in the morning and you're about to do the work and you say, is this actually the work that I'm supposed to be doing? How do you come to an answer for that day about whether or not you keep going or not? That's a great question, Alex. And for me, it's exactly what I'm going to do. As soon as we're done with this podcast, I'm just going to keep writing. You know, Mm -hmm. I haven't got I don't know act one, act two, act three. I don't know what the, you know, I'm just going to keep writing the stuff and hoping that at some point I'll get an insight and I'll go, ah, that's what this is about. You know, like you say, what business are we in and what business are we really in? I'm sort of asking those questions about this thing, this project. What's it about? And then what's it really about? And I'm just hoping that'll happen. And, you know, I don't know if it will. Maybe at some point I'll go, you know, this is just a bad idea and I'll have to come up with something else. Mm. But I don't think so. I think I'm onto something. I just don't know what it is yet. Has that happened to you before? Yeah, definitely. It happens all the time. And I always forget it. You know, I have to, I don't learn the lesson. You know, it's like, you know, didn't I, this happened with the one before. And, uh, so I'm trying to remind myself of that too, that this early stage is, you know, there's a lot of clouds, a lot of mist, a lot of fog. Just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. But it sounds to me like you have this internal conviction that eventually for it to be the right work, you need to be 
I mean, to a degree, like gripped by it, right? Like you need to be fully. I, I mean, I think I look at business that way, right? Like I, it took me a really long time and a lot of internal struggle and a lot of internal wrestling because I said, I'm not just going to create something because there's a marketplace opportunity. I want to create, like, I want to create this, the thing that grips me, right? And this phrase now, path for growth grips me. Like I can't not think about it, which is, <laughs> which is just super exciting. But I just like, where do you land? Because I talk to people sometimes and it's like, I mean, they just like whatever can, whatever they can build a business around, they'll go after that. And it doesn't matter what, I mean, like, and I mean, I assume there's writers out there that like whatever's selling in that moment, they'll go write that book. How, like, is that just a person that's wired differently or how do you look at that person, Stephen? That's a great question too, Alex. And I'm like you, I'm sort of mystified by (laughs) a lot of people do that. I don't know how they do it. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with them or they're evil or anything like that. Yeah, it's yeah. just their style. They're they're a gun for hire. They're you know they're ready to do it. But for me, I I just can't work that way. And every time I try to, when I think oh the market is ready for this kind of a thing, let me do it. It totally fizzles. And if you think about someone like Steve Jobs, to me he's like a great uh, hero to me in that sense that he led the market. You know, if he had gone out to people and said, what is it you want? Nobody would have said an iPhone. Nobody would have said a Macintosh. I had no clue. He had to invent it like Elon Musk invents stuff, right? Comes up with this idea and everybody says, you're out of your mind, you know, but he's leading the market. And so I hope for you that Path for Growth is leading something and you're going to bring something that people didn't know they even needed. And then once you explain to them, oh, shit, you know, that's great. (laughs) I hope they say that. I hope that is the exact review right there. Yeah. (laughs) Just like that. It reminds me of that Henry Ford quote. Henry said, if we would have given people what they wanted, we would have created a faster horse and buggy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I want. I'm waiting for somebody to show me. Okay, I've got a couple more questions that are absolutely practical for the people that are listening to this. In your time doing this, I just hear all the time how you get feedback from people that that are applying the practices from the war of art, from going pro, things like that. I'd love to know just from your observation, what do people who are winning against the resistance have in common, Stephen? That's a great that's another great question. And uh you know, it's hard to know because although I get a lot of emails and letters and stuff like that, I'm not really sure. You know, people will write to me and say, let me send you my book. I finished it. I could never have done it without you, blah, 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 on the ideas. So, but I'm not there watching them. I don't know what they do, but I would say that they basically have turned pro. They somehow decided I'm committing myself to do this book or whatever it is. And they somehow, just like me, work out, you know, like we say, work the steps backward, you know, what do I need to do to make this happen? Do I need to get up early? Do I need to work four hours at whatever? So I, I think that's it. It's turning pro and, and they probably have developed habits, professional habits of, you know, working a certain number of hours every day, rain or shine and, and that kind of thing. Habits. And I think routines. it all comes down to a very blue collar concept. A lot of what I'm talking about here is kind of airy fairy about the gods and the goddesses and everything, but it basically comes down to showing up each day and just doing the work. I mean, 
And that's maybe what makes it difficult to apply is because we get these grand notions that feel, I mean, like they're on a soul level, right? And we can have this vision of a world that feels like it's divinely inspired, but then we show up and the work doesn't look divinely inspired at all. No. The work the work is the typewriter sitting on yeah, the desk yeah. and, and yeah. making your own breakfast and all of yeah. that. But w- one of the things we teach with Empath for Growth is that, quote, unspoken expectations are front-loaded resentment. And it seems like exactly what we're talking about in that if you expect that it's going to be some divine, like, oh, I'm going to float into the chair and just start typing and the words are going to roll off my fingers. You've got another thing coming. If you like I walked into building this business saying this is going to be way harder than what I'm currently doing. And there's probably going to be days where I don't want to do this anymore, but it's worth it because I believe in it. And those expectations are almost like armor that you put on. I feel like to actually do the work like you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's really it's really the day-to-day stuff. And you were very smart, Alex, to realize that this venture was going to be a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. It's, everything is harder than you think it's going to be, right? A kitchen remodel takes three times as long and costs three times as much. Mm. It's just in the nature of, of reality. Before we go, uh, I want to make sure people know about your newest book. So give us a little bit of plug about what A Man at Arms is about and where they can get it, Stephen. A Man at Arms is, you know, a lot of my fiction from Gates of Fire and Tides of War and other things has been set in the ancient world. You know, it's about the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans. And I kind of came away from that for about 13 or 14 years and did just contemporary stuff. and. There was a one recurring character in all of my old books that was kind of this one-man killing machine called Telamon of Arcadia. It was kind of like Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, but in the ancient world. And he had a really interesting odyssey that I had never kind of followed through all the way to the end. And I thought, I got to write. People would say to me, why don't you write a book just about this one character? And so that's what this book is. It's called The Man in Arms. If I'd say so myself, it's really good. And, <laughs> well, I, I mean, y'all sent me a copy and two things stood out. Number one, the Clint Eastwood character, I hadn't heard you talk about him in that way until just now, but he's already showed up because I started reading it on the plane and it's just like, absolutely, Clint Eastwood. I've got a better <laughs> picture of him now. But the other thing, like, I I love I love eating food and reading how it's made. Like, I don't know why, but I just love, like, I think the food tastes better whenever you read the process that it went through uh-huh. to make the pasta or something like that. And that's how I felt reading this book, Stephen, because I've read The War of Art and I've read Going Pro and I was like, oh, like this, like this is what he's talking about. When he's talking about the type of creative writing that he's doing, this is what he's talking about. So I would tell anyone, like, I can, I'm only three chapters in and I can already tell it's just an absolute blast of a read. But I think the thing that I appreciate most about it is it's the manifestation of the everyday practice that you apply yourself to in doing the work. So I just wanted to compliment you on that, Stephen. Well, thanks, Alex. But it it is true. It's like the, you know, if I'm talking about, turning pro and showing up and doing the work, the payoff is the books, you know, not the war of art, not those books that are talking about that's how to do it. But for me, it's the novels, the fiction. So I'm glad that you appreciate how the food is prepared and you can enjoy the food too. 
I like it. Very cool. Final question for you. And this is a how question. If you're sitting down and talking to someone that would even maybe say, I know what it is. Maybe it's building a business. Maybe it's launching a new product. Maybe it's hiring another person. Maybe it's writing a book. Uh, Maybe it's writing a song. Maybe it's giving yourself a label of something that you're going to be. They know what it is, but they're in the stage that you were in so many years ago and that they would say they're running from it. If you're sitting down with that person, Stephen, what would you tell them? First, I would say sometimes it's true in life that you can't just flip the switch. It's not just willpower. Like for Roseanne Cash, we started out with her dream, right? She needed to have that dream. She couldn't just sort of summon it. It had to kind of come in its own good time. And for me, I had to spend those seven years on the road before I sort of was ready to hear my own internal teacher, you know? So I don't, a lot of times I think, People are real impatient today. It's a it's a social media world. You know, you put a sex tape on the social media, and next thing you know, you're Kim Kardashian, you know? And so everybody thinks, oh, I can turn it around overnight. But a lot of times it's not true. A lot of times things come in their own season. You know, fruit bears in its own season. And we can't, we sometimes we have to stumble and bumble and live a few more chapters of that hero's journey before we can do it. So that's maybe what I would say, that don't put too much pressure on yourself on things like that. The the moment will come and just be ready for it when it comes and try not to overthink it. Well, Stephen, I love that advice. And we're just so grateful for your time, for your investment uh, in myself personally, but also the whole Path for Growth community. And just as much with that, thank you for being someone that lives in alignment with the message you teach. I'm so grateful to Stephen for his time and honestly, just for his willingness to play all out in that conversation. We're going to put the link to his newest book, A Man at Arms, in the show notes of this episode. And we're also going to put the link to all of the other resources that we mentioned in this conversation with Stephen. So you can check those out as well. So make sure you check out those show notes. The final thing I want to end with is just a piece of practicality. And really, it's a question. I want you to think about what's one area of your life that you really feel called to not just be an amateur, but to be a professional? What's an area that you want to go pro? And then once you define that area, maybe it's a piece of your career, maybe it's your physical health, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your social life, where you want to bring a higher degree of professionalism and therefore a higher degree of intentionality. What's one step you could take towards doing that? What's one habit rhythm or routine that you could establish. And don't think of something grand and dramatic. Think of something small and specific. That's the action that we could all take to take some of these principles we learned about in this conversation and bring them into practicality. Hey, if this conversation was helpful for you, I'm going to ask you to share it with someone and challenge them to listen to it. Because one of the things that I just love doing with some of my favorite podcasts is I'll send like 14 texts out to people saying, you got to listen to this. And sometimes seven or eight people will. And then I've got seven or eight incredible conversations because we're able to reflect on the things we agreed with the things we disagreed with and have just incredible conversations. The follow-up conversations are some of my favorite part of just the whole podcast medium. So I hope y'all are taking advantage of that as well. Remember that our whole team is rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. 
our strength is for service. Let's go, let's go, let's go.